Good evening, and um, well, this is quite a difficult room noise-wise, particularly when we have the uh, windows open. Uh, so please stick up your hands any time you can't hear Aaron or myself. Um, so welcome to this evening's event. Uh, I'm Susie Orbeck, and um, I'm a trustee of the Freud Museum and a chair of the Relational School, which is how I come to know Aaron, who's um, along with several people in this room on the executive of the Relational School, which is um, a way of looking at psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic therapy from the perspective of the way in which we come to be who we are through the, the relationships that we absorb growing up and the culture that we absorb. I can talk about that at great length, but that's not what we're here for. But we are here for one of the ways that the culture comes in and comes in very, very early. And when I was thinking about introducing Aaron tonight, I was thinking, how do we convince people that culture isn't something outside? Did I just lose my voice? It sounded like I did, lost the feedback. And I was thinking about my grandson, who doesn't really know that there's any difference between, um, I wouldn't say it's social media, but he, the computer, the iPad, is simply an extension. It's just, uh, it's, it's just part of his fingers, and has been since he's 18 months old. So it's not like the culture suddenly comes in. He's, his, his experience of being human is to interact with this this machine that interacts with him and others interact around. So I think it's a very changed situation, this particular technology. And when we first had computers, you can't hear, when we first had computers, any better? Or have I lost, I think I've lost it because I can't hear. When we first had computers, I remember the first psychoanalytic sort of program that was written in which... You said something, and then the therapist repeated what you said back to you. And then you said something else, and then the therapist said, aha, I think you're saying, and then, then it repeated it. And it was a very charming program, and it was pretty shocking at how effective it could be, actually. Uh, that was a very long time ago. Um, I think what... Aaron's been able to do, and I should say that apart from this, I think it's a very, very important book, which I know you can all buy downstairs. Um, apart from this important book, uh, Aaron's a psychotherapist on Radio 1, so all technology, and he's a practicing psychotherapist. But what I think he's allowed us to do in this is to not panic those of us who are over a certain age <laughs> about the fact that if we're clinicians, people have already Googled us and found out in the case of Aaron about his centipede and all of that, and, you know, the thing he brought to the um, Natural History Museum, or they found out, you know, what the hell my son does, does for a living. Um, and that's already happened before anybody's actually even met us. And what we've discussed in our own group is the fact that some of us are also Googling our potential uh, clients, patients, because that, so there's some way in which we're already being caught up with, which is changing the boundaries of the psychotherapeutic relationship, at least from the olden days. And I, I think we've had quite a few interesting, as clinicians and frank discussions about what we should or we shouldn't and what Twitter means and all of those things, but what 
Aaron's done, which I think is quite remarkable, is he's tried to talk in terms of the internal world of object relations, if you like, and the external outward-facing world about how um, social media is, re- is, is becoming constitutive of self and therefore our forms of engagement and our form of relationship to self. So I'm going to shut up now because Aaron's prepared, as is his skill, some, and being the right generation, um, a media presentation for us that will be engaging for about 25 minutes. Then I might have a bit of a conversation with him before we all have a, an attempted um, in real time conversation. Um, and uh, so I'd like to hand over to you now. Thanks very much. Um, I, I just want to pick up from what you said about extending, extending ourselves, that a lot of this book is about how social media enables us to extend ourselves into what you might call the, the digital ether. And relational psychoanalysis has been so helpful for me understanding what that means, that, that it's a social network. It's all about relating fundamentally. And this scares a lot of us, the way in which this relating is enabled. Um, so I, I, this is kind of what I'm going to be talking about tonight. And three broad sections. So in the first section, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about context. In the second section, I'm going to talk a little bit about technology and why I think something as old as psychoanalysis can help us understand something as new as modern technologies. Uh, in the last section, I'm going to talk a little bit about psychodynamics. Can you hear me okay in the back? Yeah? I'm going to talk a, a little bit about uh, psychodynamics, so what I think is enabled or disabled across social networks. So we're going to start with the context bit. So let's just kind of dazzle with some numbers. May 2012, Facebook launches a public offering at the value of 100 billion US dollars. This is the largest IPO ever and the top ever for a tech company. And I'm not saying this is a stock tip, but I am saying it as usually when there's a lot of bubbling energy around a new uh, independent public offering, it's because people think it's going to be big. People think it's an important thing. So culturally, it's important. Not long after that, Facebook announces 1 billion users worldwide. Okay, so as of this it's week... It's not changing. Oh, is it not? Oh, goodness. All right. I mean, I'm sure you've got visuals. Maybe this is still frozen. How about now? Let me go and find stuff. Oh, you can Okay, thanks. Oh, okay. Good. Okay, so I can see the numbers, but you couldn't. I don't need to go through that again, but you get the idea. Yeah? These are your classic boring PowerPoint slides. Okay, so today it's 1.1 billion active users every month on Facebook. Now, I'm not just going to talk about Facebook, but Facebook and Twitter are kind of the big players in the field right now. So if 1.1 billion people are online, this accounts for about 12% of the world population, heavily weighted towards younger people, also heavily weighted towards the developed world. But it's a pretty big chunk of the world population we need to be thinking about. Okay, so in the UK, one in every four minutes a smartphone is used to, uh, one of every four minutes a smartphone use is used to be on Facebook. So in a sense, 25% of the time that people are using their device, which is, was originally built to talk to other people directly, is actually used to interface in a different kind of a way. We can expect this happens, is going to be happening more. Uh, average Facebook on mobile, average Facebook checks on mobile, excuse me, their profile 14 times a day. 
Okay? So a lot of people in this room are going to be kind of astonished by that. There are a lot of people out there that are going to be saying, just 14 times a day? More and more, that's going to be what you're you're going to be hearing. So people are attached to this network. So as, as, you know, psychoanalytic perspectives would would wonder what's going on here. What is the driving force? There's a motivation happening here. Okay, this one kind of really blows my mind. Globally, more people have access to mobile phones than they do clean toilets. So I want you to kind of revisit your Maslow's hierarchy of needs because, in a sense, that clean water is supposed to be at the bottom of it, and now we find something else. Now, this isn't just about connection. Lots of these people aren't using Facebook. It is about a different kind of economy that's developing in places like Africa. But it is about technology that connects us, and that's kind of the important force here. So how is tech taken up? Now, there are five ways. There are five kind of different kinds of people that take up technology. The first are the innovators. So these are generally developers. These are people who know what the, the beta is, so when they're trying something out before it opens out to the, the main population. Um, people who get their hands on stuff early. Second, we have the early adopters. These are the people that are camping outside your Apple stores to get the new phone. Um, these are the first people on the street to have it. Yeah, everybody knows who the early adopters are. The rest of us start coming in with the early majority. You think about the development that Susie was talking about of, of home computers. So there were a few kind of niche hobbyists who had them, then sort of more people had them, and then there was this, this an off-piece word, a, a tipping point, where sort of everybody started having them, and that's kind of where you get the, the late majority, and everybody's in there. Last, we have the laggards, which I think is just a nice way of saying Luddites. So these are the people who are the last in the door, usually because of fear or ignorance or whatever else might be going on, which we can explore. And um, I've spoken to lots of rooms of psychotherapists, psychoanalysts, and uh, shrinks now, and, and I hate to do this to you, but um, they tend to be numbers four and five. And no. <laughs> not all of them. Vast generalization, but for the most part, there's a lot of reticence here. So this is what I think is interesting. 1.1 billion people every month active Facebook using, and then sort of this real reticence from the psycho- psychotherapeutic community um, on the one hand, to understand it, and also to engage in it. So I just kind of want to put that as a question in the back of the mind. What, what, what are we so afraid of? Um, goes in line, I think, with parents and their children, too. So, uh, children tend to be early adopters and innovators. Parents, for the most part, tend to be early or late majority. Or Luddites. Okay, so why can we use psychoanalysis or relational psychoanalysis to talk about technology? Okay, When you read the press and you read the fear stories about what's going on with social networking and technology, you have what is called a technological determinism. So it's the sense that technology is doing something to us and we are the victims of it, in a sense. And I want to take a different point of view here. It's not my point of view. There's a lot of people talking about this this thing, which is called social shaping, which is actually that technology is developed by people and it responds to people over time. Which is why we have a picture of uh, Stonehenge up here. As early as we've had human communities, we have had technologies. And there might be some debates about what Stonehenge was used for, probably a number of different things over time. What's pretty clear is that it was a place where people came together. Whether it was a marketplace or a ritual place, it facilitated relationship. So there's kind of already a psychodynamic motivation in the development of technology from the very beginning. Now, when we apply psychoanalysis to culture, we often see cultural products, we can read them like dreams. And here I'm talking about fiction and literature and movies and television. So I wanted to ask a little bit about what social shaping of technology and our dreams as a culture mean, okay? Because this is what psychoanalysis is good at. So one of the first ones I think about is is Star Wars. 
So here we have R2-D2 and C-3PO. R2-D2 is a, a famously neurotic robot, very, very nervous all the time. Um, why do we dream up robots that have human features? What, what, you, can, you can look at it from the point of view of the film itself, but when you look at it from an analyst, you say, why are we projecting this film? Why are we putting these sensibilities into robots? Why do we have this childlike C-3PO and this nervous robot? Who would create a nervous robot? We, we probably will. We probably already have. Um, I don't, I, I'm likely to be the only Star Trek fan in the room. Are there any others by any chance? Like the Greece, Star Wars or Star Trek? Or, no, Star Trek, the next one. I do know the difference. Because <laughs> I'm moving on to Star Trek now. But. So uh, those of you who know Star Trek will know who Data is. Those of you who don't, he is the quintessential android who wants to be human. So he can do everything a person can do except have feelings and dream. And all he, he's Pinocchio for the, the 20th century. Um, so again, we say, in, in Star Trek, we can see a production of a being that wants to be human, clear enough. But why do, we make, why do we make data in Star Trek as a cultural dream? What is it about this piece of technology that wants to be human? And what is it about being human that we want from technology? I think there's some information here. There's a dialogue here that's going on. And when we look at the latest iteration of Star Trek, we have the Doctor, who also is a piece of technology. But very interestingly, he's a, he's a medical doctor, but he's a hologram. So he has access to the whole of medical history, everything, but we interface with him like a human being because people don't want to go in and see their doctor and have it be a machine. They want an interface that feels human. He turns out to be quite narcissistic and has a very bad bedside manner, but this is also an interesting thing because we seem to be producing in our technological dreams flawed technology in, in the sense that we have flawed humanity. But we don't have to stick with dreams. We can also look at the real world. If you remember those first uh, PCs in our offices, uh, we had the DOS system, which really you, you had to know how to talk to it. You had to know the language. It had a really off-putting screen. This is actually some time in because there were periods you know, where there weren't keyboards, where there were little cardboard cards and that sort of thing. And now we have the iPhone, which, like Susie was saying, an 18-month-old can intuitively know what to do with. Okay? This is social shaping in action. This is how we have made technology through feedback with human experience and motivation to become something more and more human. And social networks are kind of the epitome of this. So if it's technological development born through uh, human enterprise, then it's psychological. So technology is psychological. We can look at it that way, and please can we? Because <laughs> for a long time, we're not looking at it. And when I talk psychology, I'm talking psychodynamics. I'm talking about the unconscious. I'm not talking about what colors attract eyes to look across the screen or what kind of button engages what kind of behavior. That's experimental psychology. I'm talking about something a little bit different here what we can infer from people's motivations. So now let's get into the psychodynamics. Uh, we're in Freud's old house, so um, just to make things easy, we're going to use his model of the psyche to start with, the individual psyche. Um, I'm going to assume general knowledge of uh, ego and superego here, but just to make it really clear... The ego is the bit that kind of manages between the id and the superego. So the id are our passions and our aggressions and our un deep unconscious. Our superego is that bit that's more consciousness, you know, our, our uh, introjected culture and law. And the ego kind of operates between our desires and our instincts and what we think we should and shouldn't do based on social stuff, Yeah. The ego also functions between the outside world and the inside world. So how to manage this outside world with all of the stuff going on on the inside world. That's where the I is. Yeah, That's where the decisions are made, in a sense, fed by all this other stuff. But we don't just have an individual psyche. We also have a relational psyche. 
And the relational psyche is something that develops between the baby and the mother. It's an ego-to-ego thing more. It's a self-to-self thing. And when I say self-to-self, that's inclusive of id-ego and super-ego. And for those of you who know much about object relations, all those internalized objects, the whole kit and caboodle. Now, what's interesting about the relational psyche is that babies aren't born yet with fully-fledged egos. They develop them through relationships with their mother or their primary caretakers. So this ego is never really an individual ego. It's always in relationship from the very beginning, and it begins to know itself as an individual ego by testing things with the person outside it. So if the baby is crying, it has a physical experience of maybe hunger. The good enough mother identifies this hunger feeds it back to the baby, and after a period of time, the baby can say, oh, I have this feeling, in a sense. This feeling is hunger, and my my mother or my primary caretaker can contain this feeling. And I begin to understand myself as something different from her. There's a lot of theory here. I'm not going to go too deeply into it. That's the broken-down, simple version. Um, But there's there's a journey of discovery in that process, a discovery of self and a discovery of other. I also get to discover what my mother is like, not just what I'm like. And I use mother as a shorthand. It's whoever is that first primary relationship. So if we look at a normal kind of relating relationship, we have a self on one hand, and then we have another self, and we have them in relationships. We always have this back-and-forth dialogic situation going on. We're each finding ourselves in relation to that other person, with our egos kind of in the foreground, but also extended. And the interesting thing about extension... As long before we had social networks, we were already extended when we're in somebody else's mind. It feels good when somebody thinks of us. We feel good when we think of them. They're already there inside us. The social network is kind of a way of making it more explicit, in a sense. So here we have the social network. And this becomes the mediator between two selves. So now this extension comes out into the digital world, and we are doing all our relating stuff. So, so, well, not all of it, really, but we're doing quite a bit of it through this kind of, uh, through this sort of uh, uh, mediator. Underneath it, we always have the unconscious. So that's messing with us in the most direct and simple relational experiences, telling us what we want, what we need, um, what we expect the other person to want or need, all that kind of dialogic stuff. And now it's actually coming up another level. So it's working its way through the extensions of the digital world, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how that happens. The main thing that's really interesting about uh, the relational psyche is this concept of recognition, and I call it here the key to interpersonal discovery. So what the primary caretaker wants to do is recognize her her child for um, the experience that they are experiencing as authentically as possible. Not so much what I think your experience is, but what your experience is. We can never get there because we're always looking through these filters. Um, And recognition is really important because what develops is the child then begins to recognize the primary caretaker, and wants to know about her, and wants to know what's going on in there. And outside of sex, which is kind of what Freud thought that was the libidinal instinct, uh, the relational perspective is that this motivation is primarily relational. It's a motivation towards recognition, towards giving it, and towards receiving it. Um, if this is true, you can see why social networks are so important and why they've been taking up, taken up so much. So Jessica Benjamin, who is a great theorist of recognition, says that it is this. She says it's very profound and very simple at the same time. To recognize is to affirm, to validate, acknowledge, know, accept, understand, empathize, take in, tolerate, appreciate, see, identify with, find familiar, and love. So this is a real 
collection of verbs here, and I just want you to reflect for a second on how you might try to attain recognition, in a sense, by using these verbs, and how you might give recognition by using these verbs. Sometimes we do it verbally, sometimes we do it physically. There's a whole variety of ways, a very complex exchange of things that are going on when recognition is deployed. When we think about a social network, I want to think about how recognition is deployed across a social network. So uh, on the left-hand side, or this side, just think about the complexity that these things involve. And then let's just think to start with this one. Okay? For those of you on Facebook, you know that there's a like button. Now, the like button, it does all of these things, which I think is really creepy. <laughs> Somebody can put up a status, and you can identify with it, see it, acknowledge it, know it. Uh, you can also do the opposite of the, well, not so much with a like button, but you can indicate, you can, there are other ways in which you can indicate those sorts of things. And this is like a, this, this is a real bottleneck for me here, because I think we have this complexity of experience that's deployed through this tiny little aperture, which is a like button. And there are a few other ways that we can deploy it as well. Some of our, our have wider apertures than just the like button. Um, but a comment, so a comment on a profile. There's a little bit more room here to move about, yeah? You can respond to something that's been put out there in a little bit of a wider kind of a way. So you see that aperture opening. We can deploy recognition, or we can withhold recognition by saying things like, I don't agree with you. Although we are acknowledging when we say, I don't agree with you, but we're not affirming in some kind of way. Or we're affirming our disagreement. You can read it lots of different ways. But this is, this is the complex nature of it, yeah? Um, for those of you on Twitter, a reply is a very similar thing. So I, I think the vast majority of tweets that go out into the ether probably disappear. And this is not a good feeling for people because they're extending themselves out there by thinking they're clever or funny or witty or boring, which most of them are. And there's no, there's no catch. It doesn't come back, so there's no recognition. If that tweet is replied to, there, I've got it. I've got a stroke. There's a little bit of recognition. Somebody saw my tweet and replied to it. So another narrow aperture, but a really important one. This is why people are checking it. I think Twitter probably more than 14 times a day. Retweets the same thing. So it's kind of saying, I see what you said, and I'm going to repeat what you've said. I'm not going to reply with something different, but I, I've seen it, I acknowledge it, and I put it back out there. It's good. It replicates. It's like a meme, yeah? My meme is replicating out there. I must be something. I've, I've been recognized. Um, a share. So this is another interesting form. You know, you read an interesting newspaper article, you put it up on your Facebook page, and then somebody else shares that Facebook page. Or... You know, better yet, for a certain generation, you put up some music, and then somebody shares that music, and it's like, your music choice is good, I affirm. Yeah, it's like, yeah, points. So again, all of these ways are, are different ways of recognition. And follow, also on Twitter, the number of followers you have. There must be, you must be followable if you're out there. I'm deploying recognition just by, by signing up to subscribe to you. So again, just think about kind of what this offers, how this is offered in interpersonal relationships, and then kind of the narrow aperture through which it's deployed across social networks. So if we look back at our model again, we have the unconscious, which is forming, <clears throat> informing and underlying all self-to-self -self relating in the world. Uh, we make it simple by just looking at one-on-ones, but we're talking about groups as well, which kind of doubles and trebles the, the complexity. And then we have the ego, which is kind of the seat of management. So the unconscious is informing the ego, but the ego is the bit that kind of, again, it's the I bit that's out there. So when you make a profile on Facebook or you tweet, that's kind of an aspect of your ego that's doing that. That's your online, your online identity, in a sense. <clears throat> and then we have the social network, which, again, facilitates the mediation between the two selves by way of the ego. 
this is kind of what it looks like. We're extended out there in this particular kind of a way, sometimes in scary ways, because we're extended out there even when we go to sleep at night. People can be uh, recognizing or not all night long, and then what do people do when they wake up in the morning? They check their Facebook first and see how many times they've been recognized during, during the night. So uh, that extension is, you know, it, it's out there. It's really, it, it's out there and it's permanent, and I'll, I'll come back to that towards the end. So we look at one side of this. Uh, this is develops into what I call the outward lean. So we have the self, and we have the social network. We have an investment of energy. So for Freud, this would be libido, but I would say this is a kind of relational energy that we invest through the social network. Then the social network throws something back at us, and this is the outward-facing part of our ego. Okay. So if you think about a social network as a very large public place, it's kind of the same way you might show up in a shopping mall or at work and kind of be concentrating on, on that part of your presenting self. In that, in that environment. Um, the thing about a social network is it, it kind of inflates this outward-facing ego because we're checking it on the phone 14 times a day or because we're so invested and because it favors, through the very architecture of the nature of these networks, this particular outward-facing part of the self. Um, on the other side of the self, you can see that it is in shadow, and I think that there is a shadow, and you can think of this... Uh, as, as a union shadow, if it, if it floats your boat or not, but it is the bit that is cast beyond this sort of outward-facing ego. So it's the bit that the social network doesn't particularly well enable and kind of remains in the background. Just as poignant stuff, okay? And we've got theories to talk about that, and that's what I'm going to talk about next. Uh, and I will bring Jung in, if that's allowed, in the Freud Museum. Uh, so one way of thinking about the outward-facing ego is, is as a persona, as a union persona, which he called a kind of a mask, designed on the one hand to make a definite impression on others, and on the other to conceal the true nature of the individual. Now, for Jung, the persona was not a pathological thing that we all need it. It's a way that we, it's our social face, he called it, our social mask. Um, but as you can kind of see where I'm going, the social network kind of enables it in a particular kind of way. You still okay in the back? You can hear me okay? Yeah? yeah? Okay. Uh, it gets problematic when one's identification is completely lodged within the persona. I am the persona. So if you think about that ballooned outward-facing ego, that becomes the whole picture. Um, little more worries around this for younger people, people who are developing on social networks who may not have developed, in a sense, a strong enough shadowy ego and all those other bits before they start investing all this energy in the outward-facing ego. So are there, are there identifications with persona going on? Uh, people... <clears throat> Freudians and post-Freudians would be more comfortable with the uh, Winnicottian perspective. Uh, he called it the false self. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the false self is set up to protect the true self, to respond to challenges in the environment, um, and it essentially takes up the role of social compliance. And this goes way back to those early pictures with the baby and the mother. Um, <clears throat> as the baby grows and registers difference between him or herself and the mother, it develops a way of coping with that difference by meeting the mother or the primary caretaker on their terms, in a sense. So that's where this kind of fissure begins to develop between a private internal self and an external self in relation to another. So developmentally, it's really important because we all already have this fissure. We already have a development of a false self. Uh, when people ask, <clears throat> is, uh, you know, is, is social networking creating narcissism? You know, on the one hand, I have to say no, because that, that's already created much, much earlier. People have become narcissistically inclined, in a sense, before they get on social networks. Does it encourage self-involvement? I think probably yes. Similarly, for Winnicott, the false self is not a pathological condition. 
Um, it is it, it serves a really important defensive purpose. It's also a creation, a unique creation of the whole self. So it's actually reflective of an aspect of the, tr- the true self, if you want to call it that. So when you think about the outward-facing ego that I showed you before, it's all based on stuff that is you, in a sense. It's just you in relation to how you wish to perceive, how you wish others to perceive you, or how you wish to be in a public environment. But he, interestingly, I think, has the same worries that Jung has, that if you identify with your false self, or if you believe that the false self is running the show, that's when you start to get into trouble. So he uses the the metaphor of actors, which I really like here. Uh, There are those who, who can be themselves and who can also act, whereas there are others who can only act, and who are completely at a loss when in a role, and not being appreciated or applauded. So there is a nature of acting self across online social networks. Um, again, you know, I would say that's not pathological. It's a new way of being out public in the world. It's a new way of being at your job, or being at a nightclub, or being at a bar. But it has other aspects to it, particularly the way that the aperture is quite low, and that the information coming through it is quite limited. So recognition, recognition is deployed by way of online social networks. Limited by way of the architecture, weighted to outward manifestations of the ego. You can see I'm kind of moving towards my conclusion here. Um, Solicitous of projection and transference, which is a really important one. When you have less information, you're more likely to project and to transfer. So when we have bits of information about people, there's loads of room for fantasy to be projected onto those people uh, wish fulfillments to be worked out, and transferences, however you want to think about it, old kinds of relationships in which we idealize the other through social networks or we demonize the other. The feedback is too slim to get uh, subject-to-subject relating in the kind that we have in intimate circumstances. Now, across lots of social networks, that's already in the background, so it's not a problem. You already have a real relationship, particularly on Facebook with most of these people anyway. So this kind of messes around about the edges, but you've got the formation underneath it. But still, it kind of does invite... You know, this is the Facebook anxiety is, is no fantasy. It's because of just this kind of thing. And it produces a shadow. And as I said before, if this kind of lean or uh, investment into the outward-facing ego lasts too long, then it reduces the capacity to be alone, which is another Winnicottian idea, which is when you have identified enough or interjected enough your initial uh, positive relationships, you can be alone because they reside inside of you in a certain kind of way. We're now developing kind of a potentially creepy situation where because we're extended in this way, we kind of lean on that uh, and we need it rather than kind of being able to be alone. You know, it used to be at least when you were on the bus, you weren't on Facebook, but that's not the case anymore. Um, and it's not going to be the case on airplanes and, you know, I'm sure the channel tunnel's coming next, so you know, your, your, your refuges are fast disappearing. So the question I went into the book asking is, does online social network fundamentally change things, or is it just a different way of deploying the same old stuff? Um, this is pretty much the categorical answer that I came up with. Yeah, it does change things pretty fundamentally, and there are four reasons why I think this happens. The instantaneous nature of online engagement, so it goes out there quick. And this is an interesting relation to the shadow, because... Um, it's kind of paradoxical. The email sent too soon actually comes from your shadow. It doesn't come from your outward-facing ego. But because of the instantaneous nature of our technologies, we can also expose ourselves very easily that way. Um, so the instantaneous, that changes things on both, on both sides of the perspective. Now, these four things all work synergistically with each other, so it's, it's like a geometric progression, so it just kind of gets worse and worse. Although I'm, not, I'm, I'm also not, um, uh, I'm not dystopian about it either, I want to be really clear. But I do have some concerns. The ease of 
replicability is another thing. It goes out there, and then it can be replicated very quickly. If it's going out there fast and being replicated, that means it can be replicated before you want to take it away. So we kind of have a we, we have some trouble there. That's where it's synergistic. The ease with which privacy can be lost. So here's the the email thing that we're talking about on one on one level, but with the whole NSA stuff that we've been talking about, phone hacking, all of this kind of stuff. If we're extending ourselves out there, and it can happen fast, and it can be replicated, then we are changing the nature of our extended selves. Yeah, the, the, our, our extended selves are out there relating in the fourth way which is the perpetual quality of the information that goes online, which works synergistically with all the things above it. Yeah, so it doesn't go away. Uh, Freud uses this great metaphor with the uh, mystic writing pad, you know, the mystic uh, magic slate, it's called, where you write on a piece of wax paper, you lift it up, it disappears, and you write again. He, he uses this to talk about the difference between the pre-conscious and the conscious. And when you lift it up and you look, you can see all the writing there if you really try, but it's really kind of in the murky depths of your pre-conscious. It's not like that anymore. Everything is written all the time. We don't have the mystic writing pad. We just have the, we have Google. So we can always go back and find it. So just to kind of finish out, to give you kind of the main points that I've been talking about today, uh, selfhood has always been extended into others' minds. Now that extension is just made explicit through social media um, and other things like Google that contain these four important differences to other stuff. Uh, the architecture of various social networking sites, that's what SNS is, is interface with the unconscious in a variety of different ways. And this is also an interesting point where I think uh, programmers need to be talking to psychoanalysts because they have no idea how much power they have by, by creating the like button and not creating something else. I mean, can we have social networks that are able to deploy and work with recognition in interesting ways that we haven't discovered yet? I think through social shaping we might find that, that we might actually redress some of the privacy issues um, some of the permanence issues are already being redressed by things like Snapchat, but usually in a really disturbing kind of a way. But, uh, you know, social shaping will, will continue, so I'm curious to see where that brings us. And gosh, you know, we need to recognize the unconscious and all of this stuff. It all looks very conscious and very easy to understand, but it's very complex and unconscious underneath. Fundamentally relational. We're out there to be related. It is a social network. Technology-enhanced relating. Maybe not so good on some levels, but, you know, it's kind of good on some other levels, and we know it increases trust, for example, for some groupings of people who have trusted members on, on their Facebook profile. I can't go into all that, but there's lots, you know, there's some pretty interesting good stuff, too. Driven by recognition and dominated by outward ego expression. So this is just kind of a taste about what's going on in the book. These are the nature of the kind of psychodynamics that I think are operating. This is why I think we can talk about psychodynamics and technology. I'm going to leave you with one last thought, which we know from relational psychoanalysis, but just I'll leave it to leave with you in your minds about how it operates across social networks and technology. But psychologically, we discover ourselves between ourselves and others. And online social networking, whether you like it or not, is a way in which people are doing that today. So thanks very much. Uh, thank you so much. Is my mic on still? Yes. Thank you. Um, I think I want to take up two things that, that you said, uh, not in an antagonistic way. I just like to talk a bit about a bit more about them, which is the spillage of the unconscious material. Um, you know, it used to be when there was when one was on AOL, if you were sending to another AOL person, you could pull it back. Right, you could pull your email back because you'd written in a snit or whatever, and. Um, but now I think the situation can get 
explained very fast because people are communicating very fast through even even dinosaurs like me who really use much more email than I do. I mean, I use Twitter, but I don't use Facebook very much. But so the, the, so there's a question of the spillage of the unconscious and the things that you wouldn't wish to have out there, the attitudes you wouldn't wish to be expressing, the the disappointments, rage, you know, all the stuff that people don't... So that's one kind of thing I'd like to talk about a little bit. And the other bit that I want to talk about is that there is a search for recognition, particularly when recognition hasn't... has only been in very problematic ways historically. So if I look at the... the so there's social recognition. You know, the, the kids who are in the bar, who are uploading pictures to their friends, who are at home, who are uploading pictures with another group of people, and they're all trying to say we're having a great time when nobody's actually doing anything except uploading themselves, right? There's that kind of thing, right? Then there's, then there's the sort of work that I know about quite a lot where people put up um, not just ordinary selfies, but Photoshop selfies, and ask to be rated on them. So they're looking, they're on the search for a body and for recognition, and they're asking but get a lot of negative um, uh, responses to, can I pass, am I okay, can I be seen? And actually, I think you've given a very lovely um, view of Winnicott, but you and, I, you and I have discussed this, that I think the whole point about the false self is that because it's false, that it needs constant feeding. And it's not sustainable. It is an aspect of self, but it's often, an, it's often a substitute for self, which therefore is in an emergency situation. That's how Winnicott talks about it. So that what people are doing sometimes in social networks, as opposed to in a friendship network or in an isolated situation, is they're desperately in that emergency to get some kind of response. So it's not that I want to be negative. I just want to put those things on the table for you to respond to. Yeah. I've got a few, I've got a few responses. So, so probably starting with the second bit. Um, I, I think the, the big sign of this, which most people will have experienced, is being at a gig or something where people are kind of watching the entire thing through their, their iPhones. And this, this is indicative to me of not just the incapacity to be alone, but the incapacity to be without having that outward-facing ego thing, so the kind of um, more pernicious false, uh, false self that you're talking about. Um, in the book, I talk about passive and active online identities and Passive online identities are sort of like the things that people can find out about you by Googling you, stuff that you would prefer wasn't there, pictures that people put up of you that you haven't done. And then there are the active online identities, which are like our Facebook profiles or Twitter profiles, the selfies. And this is a way of gaining control of this kind of vast thing by sort of saying, I'm, I'm, this is the one I'm going to show you, and then this is the other... I don't know whether that's probably not the slippage because that's just the nature of the technology, but I think this is a desperate way in which we're trying to manage this absolute and total overload. To address the first part of your question, I think it's 
I think false self-being is difficult enough at the best of times. And because of this narrow aperture through which we can use it, and because that narrow aperture is so powerful, because thousands of people can see it at the same time, um, it does potentially tip the balance in in an uncomfortable kind of way. Another thing that interested me today when I was on Twitter is that um, the the way that one's identity, I'm talking now as a therapist, a psychoanalyst, is, oh dear, what can I put up there? Okay, so there's uh, somebody tweets a picture of Lord Rothermere, who owned the Daily Mail during the war, and Hitler. Okay? And this is in response to the assault on Ed Miliband's father, on Ralph Miliband. Okay? Now, to me, I think mental health is all about showing that picture. Okay? But I'm very constrained in that kind of way because it's not... It's not kind of really in our domain in a sort of ordinary kind of way as a therapist. And I don't know whether you've had those kind of dilemmas. Because presumably you tweet under a psychotherapeutic handle of some kind. So at least people are expecting that from you. And so what we gather into our domains as clinicians is really quite complex, I think. And we haven't, you know, I think we can be scolded for doing things like that. But I think it's very, it's, it's an interesting question. And so I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> I, I don't get to be nearly as witty as I'd like to be on, on Twitter, <laughs> which is really frustrating because I make, I make the assumption that uh, clients past or future or current can and will check those things out. So that's, for me, that's... Well, and you're not funny in sessions. <laughs> I, I try to keep the wit, keep the wit in the in the consultation room. Um, but yeah, it is. I think it is. It is different. It's funny because it is different for us. But what's really interesting is the new generation of therapists that are coming through already have their digital dossiers. They're already on Twitter and Facebook when they start their training. So I could kind of thoughtfully engage, and I engage in a way that um, I'm still learning and not always 100 percent comfortable with, and sometimes wish I could change or do it differently. I did take the leap, in a sense, and decide that this is the environment, and I, I don't wish not to participate in this environment, try to do it thoughtfully. But, um, I, you know, the new generation coming through, they're already there, they've got their digital dossier, they've got their 15 years of whatever Facebook pictures that may or may not have been protected, their Google passive identities are out there. Um, it's just how it is. So, uh, those of you who haven't done that yet, I can see, I can see why, because there is, you know, that preserve is, is going, is getting smaller and smaller. I don't know if that answers your question. No, I'm sure it doesn't answer my question. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think one other question that I want to raise, and then maybe go to everybody, is one of the things that we discussed in our group when you first talked to us about this Mm -hmm. um, was how we can become stalked now. Mm -hmm. And that's a very, very different kind of uh, situation for a mental health worker. I mean, it's not that we didn't get stalked once in a while. But, you know, when your, when your patient or client says to you, or says to a colleague of mine, oh, so what did your daughter major in at Harvard? Right? I mean, and you don't even know how they got there. You know, you're, it's a kind of stalking. And it raises interesting clinical questions where you don't want people to be not curious. 
And you don't want to say, well, I wonder why you needed to... And you don't want to... Like, I mean, there's many different ways to take this up. Mm-hmm. But there is a kind of taint of, of stalk that um, is another way of a gotcha. You know, got you, because this is, you know... Yeah, I know this about you. Yeah, I know this about you, and you're not going to like that I know this about you, and you wouldn't choose to love this, but, you know, hey, I know this about you. Mm-hmm. Uh one thing that I talk about in the book is how the simply, quite simply, the bar has been lowered and in, 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 in how you and how you can stalk. So, ten years ago, to find out that kind of information about your therapist or analyst or whoever, you would have to do something that would be a sign to you that you were doing it wrong. So you would have to hire a private eye or go to some sort of archive or hide in your car. You know, all, all these barriers. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, you can find out all this stuff. In the privacy of your own home, nobody needs to know about it, and there you are. And I think, I, I think this is very much what I talked about today. This is actually, you could call it a perverse recognition. You know, I'm going to get in there. Um, I'm not going to negotiate this with you. I'm going to find out. Um, but, but the push against that that you have in the complex interrelating isn't there. And, you know, you're lucky when you find out you're being stalked because you could be being stalked without finding out where underline undermines the therapeutic or the real relationship. I mean, this book came out of, I'm not going to go into the clinical experience, but the book came out of a clinical experience where I just had the aha moment, which was like, oh my gosh, this is happening out there all the time, but they're not talking about it because they're not in therapy with each other. So it's, it's fundamentally informing and messing around with relationships. Okay, shall we open it up? Please. Um, do you, well, maybe you'll need to use... I'm going to shout quite loudly, but oh. I'll try. Thank you. Um, I'm a lecturer in journalism, and as of the last three or four years, I've taken a big interest in social networking, and Twitter in particular. Um, and I found that people over a certain age have a huge fear of social networking. But once they understand what it does, then they find it a very um, interesting, less isolating experience where instead of having perhaps a a network of a few friends, they started to um, embrace lots more interests, started to understand, uh, read more widely. Um, And I think this fear is something that makes a lot of people... um, Worried, and when you hear the word stalking, and you didn't use the word trolling or abuse when you went down the list of what social network does, as opposed to recognition or whatever, um, I think it's because a large number of people who have just started to tweet don't really understand what it does, and therefore they're frightened. Because, as I see it, if you don't want to um, say specific things about yourself or your family or what you had to eat or where you went or what show you're interested in going to, you don't do it. So I imagine that in a profession like psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, in professions where the person who is uh, keen to be... Um, unknown in a way to their client, then it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to tweet. I run workshops on getting tweeting and introduction to Twitter. And 
everyone who starts by saying, oh, I can't do it, oh, no, no, it's completely outside my possibility of understanding. It doesn't take very long for them to turn around and say, I can't believe it. This isn't what I thought Twitter was. I thought it was gossip. I thought it was nonsense. I thought it was useless. This has changed my life. And I think that's what happens. And I do think that people have to think very, very carefully why they want to be on Twitter and what persona they want to convey on Twitter. And I can't say it in psychoanalytical terms, the, the, the shadows and whatever else, but it's fairly straightforward. You have to decide why you want to be on social networks, who you want to talk to, and what you want to say. Do you want to come back or do you want to take some more questions? Uh, or comments? I think I'll, I'll say one thing, which is um, it is true that there are cultures across social media in that we can't say that it's one single thing and that we find on particularly social media in which your name is present and you know who you are, um, you don't tend to get trolling, you don't tend to get abuse, you get some bullying in schools and that kind of stuff, but it's always related back to who the person is. You tend to get, in the lower aperture social networks like Twitter, where you get anonymity, where you can kind of throw stuff out there. But a lot of the research that I found on Facebook in particular is that um, people who were on Facebook, who closely managed their relationships on Facebook, had, uh, you know, had greater trust in others and greater trust in strangers, um, felt that they had a more cohesive, real social network as, as online and offline. And just like in any actual social network, you can surround yourself with people who are going to beat you up all the time, or you can surround yourself with people who won't, and that they're actually, people are quite savvy, but people are not asking the questions, a lot of the time, I don't think people are asking the questions that you think people should be asking. People are just doing it, because that's their outward-facing ego. Yeah. And that's where it gets, that's why I want to talk about this, because people should be asking those kind of questions. In the back? Oh, we've only got one mic, right? Yeah. And then, well, while we're doing that, why don't you come in? Because you okay. can probably turn around and shout. Yeah, um, Graham Allen, psychotherapist. Um, the word I was going to ask you about, really, was intimacy. And um, I work part of the week with, with um, six formers. And um, this is something that I've, I've kind of read with, with Sherry Turkle, who's yeah, the other the other book. Um, she argues that there might be this sort of confusion now between privacy and public, which is becoming increasingly kind of eroded. And you could argue with the younger, younger generations, it's very different from my perception. And I was wondering about intimacy, if, if you don't quite know what is public and private, and if we're getting a sort of a, an erosion, how, how does that link with intimacy? I, I was just wondering if you could both comment on mm -hmm. intimacy and public and private. Well, there's a really great interview in uh, B. Van Kidron's new film, In Real Time, with Sherry Turkle. Yeah. And um, I think she's a very important commentator from a sociological and cultural perspective, right? She doesn't get the psychoanalytic piece. I, I don't know that I have what I can say about it, because I think the shape of intimacy for different generations is what is intimate for me was not intimate for my parents, right? What is intimate in terms of my friendships has such a different taste, texture, and depth than what 
ever a previous generation had. And so I don't, I don't, I think the intimacy is shaped by, by the world we're in. So I'm not sure I want to say this is intimacy and this isn't intimacy. And I think it's, you're raising a really important question because I think in long-term relationships, we do know, we don't just have to take Madonna's word for it, that people were sleeping with their iPhones or their Blackberries, right? And as well as their lovers. So that, you know, intimacy is both something that is with a one, but it's also embedded in this other this other engagement. I, I, I mean, it's not my area. I can't. I haven't thought about it deeply enough. I think I better go over to the expert, really. <laughs> I, I think there are two different issues. I think that young people are more savvy about intimacy than we give them credit for, and we know from some Pew Internet polls that they actually know how to manage their settings pretty well. They ask for help when they don't. That kind of stuff, with stuff like sexting and stuff like that, people get into a bit of a mess. For me, the intimacy issue is about this nature of aperture and complexity. So we have, as we find, a lot of relationships are initiated on online because it's easier to take that first step to flirt, to send texts, to say, do you like me? And that next step, when you're kind of plunged into the difficult, the real complexity of what an intimate relationship is, they're lost. So a lot of this is navigated through, through the network, in a sense. And I think so I don't think it's necessarily the privacy, but it might be the shadow bit of the self that's not quite used to being out there and exposed, the vulnerable bits, bits you don't put on Facebook. And but maybe it's also the fact that if you're doing that, because I think I've thought about that quite a lot, you do have, it's a relationship of projection. And you don't have the ordinary disappointment of the other. Yeah, like until you meet them for the first time, and then all those idealizations <laughs> that you've created over the network come crashing down. But I, I'd be kind of interested to know, if you're working with six forms, what you might have to say about it. I, uh, there's so many kind of different angles on this. I mean, I, I feel that, that you're right. I, I feel it's my perception isn't necessarily what that, you know, absolutely it's not what their perception is. But I think there's some examples. I mean, I, I thought it was very interesting, uh, a young a young woman, woman said that uh, her and her boyfriend were getting very bored because they sent so many texts and tweets to each other when they actually met up physically. And, and they'd been going out for a few months. There was nothing to talk about. I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> really interesting. What about sex? <laughs> <laughs> um, that is interesting. Yeah. Uh, it, it's difficult to think kind of at this moment. But I, I, I guess I worry about it. It does worry me. But yeah. we did have five letters a day in Jane Austen's time, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, five postal deliveries. In the back. Did... Can you speak louder? Because we now can't hear you. <laughs> Thank you. 
cover in the lecture, but it's kind of a bit about omnipotence, that there is, that because it's a weird kind of potential intimacy you have in front of your computer, because on the one hand, you're very close to the other, or your perception of the other, and that you're writing this thing. In another way, it's exactly what you say, you can look, a le- you can look away, you can shut it down, uh, you can project much more easily because you don't have it coming back. So it's actually quite regressive in a sense, it kind of regresses back to like a two-year-old level in that way, where you, you can be you can take some kind of psychological, you can change your psychological reality of it. Um, alternatively, and paradoxically, it also makes you quite negative because it's part, quite um, uh, negatively impacted because those parts of you that are out there can be responded to and then you find out that it hits a vulnerable spot and you, know, you wake up in the morning and somebody said something and, and you're really deeply impacted by it. Um, so I think, I think in that capacity it is quite regressive and about a certain kind of control. Um, to link your question with the question that you just asked, there has been some really interesting research, not necessarily about intimacy, but about relationship breakups. So what happens when you stay friends with your uh, broken up relationship or not, and when you see pictures of that person out there and all this kind of stuff, which I, I, I think Freud's theory of mourning and melancholia is really helpful for, because you can never really let go of this object that's still out there full time. <laughs> So that has a lot of consequences. Also, not all necessarily negative. There's some interesting positive ones. Um, but just to briefly answer your second question, it operates in a very similar kind of a way that as a therapist, you become an object out there uh, when your eyes are closed, when you're asleep at night, and somebody who is looking for something from you, which is what, what came from this book is started from when that happened to me, uh, they will find that object out there in the digital world by Googling you or trying to get access to your Facebook or reading your tweets. Um, and I think we have a lot to learn. I don't think I don't think therapists who tweet or have a passive or active online identity quite know what to do with this. I do a lot of workshops on this to think it through. But I think you need to think, think psychodynamically about it, that it holds meaning. And like I think like you said, you know, our identities are out there. My persona is out there tweeting away, and I need to think about what that's about for me and how that's affecting my clients. You know, I've made the decision to do that, um, I've had consequences for having done that, and, and my opinion might change. It might come out of it altogether at some stage, but right now I'm just trying to feel through the difficulty of it. Can you go there, Stefan? I saw a hand. What was it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Maybe if you stand up, there won't be the same fuzz. We get fuzz. Yeah. I just think you're not you're not present in those moments. You're not present for live experience. 
So when you think back to that picture of the mother and the baby, one thing about that baby is it's present for its experience, isn't it? It's just having this experience. And then we develop a capacity to have an ego. And then we develop this false self. And then suddenly all the investments in that false self, I think it's a problem. And I think actually we, we need to respond to what's going on by teaching it in some kind of a way. I think mindfulness is a really helpful way of doing that. But about just, um, I, I think this was great about psychotherapy and psychoanalysis because it is a it is kind of an enforced being with another and it is kind of a slowing down and you know ideally you don't have those devices in there I don't know if you want well to I, I think that raises a really interesting question because um, I don't know how many people are therapists in this room but people do come in with their devices and they can buzz they can say, I have to keep this on because, you know, the so-and-so is happening or my daughter's going to, you know, the da da whatever. There's all sorts of things. And what I find really interesting is that I don't have a uniform response. So but one person puts it outside the room and she's, that's kind of what she's become accustomed to. Another person's always taking their device to sh- out to show me the text that he got from somebody. <laughs> right? So that's a, a kind of another use of, it's like an aid memoir. No, in his case, somebody has no memory uses it as an aid memoir rather than like this. Um, other people have it kind of buzzing. It drives me, I mean, if it drives me crazy, I have to say I can't do it. But there, it's, it's, I think it isn't one thing. Is it? And I think that's what's sort of interesting about your opening slide on with Stonehenge is that we, can imagine many different things that Stonehenge was for and represents. And there are many different ways in which a mobile device or a smartphone in the consulting room has very different has very different meanings between us for the individual and affects us really differently. I think the difference though in that situation is you don't have yours. So no, I don't, but there are therapists who will answer the phone. Yeah. That's very, that's, that mean, when I first was becoming a therapist, the therapist of course answered the phone and smoked with you. I mean, there was, n- you know, both of them. I mean, I, I think that's a lot of, a lot of people point towards young people and children and their attachment to devices, but you know, I see more and more if the parents Putting the device ahead of the children as well, oh, which is it's really heartbreaking. It is the phone, you know, the phone. But, the, but was, is that because the device is so much easier to deal with? I mean, isn't it? Is it because it's like going to work? You know, work is a lot easier than a lot of other things yeah, in life. Yeah. And so, social media is a kind of way of extending some of those things where you actually can accomplish something in a very short space yeah, it, of time. Yeah, it's gratifying. I think it's gratifying. Yeah. It's a really huge social media issue. I mean, not just because of the... I'm sorry to be answering, but not just because because of the pro-Anna sites, which are absolutely huge and proliferating, but there's a lot of trolling on any of the progressive non-pro-Anna, you know, anti-Anna sites of kind of putting people down for daring to do, for daring to try to find an appetite and respond to it. I mean, 
several several sites that I'm I'm involved in. <clears throat> and then there's a whole new technology which you probably I don't know if you know about it, but it's about um, recovery programs that are online, where you you can relate to your clients or patients because they write in several times a day about exactly how they're feeling, what they're eating, what they weren't able to eat, and you monitor it. So it's like it's like physician monitoring, you know, the heart patient at, at a distance. So I mean, I, those are they're three very they're three really different uses of the kind of the blogs that try to help people, the blogs that try to help people in the pro anna way, which I think is really helps people to kill themselves and kill each other, or keep their defense structure going. And then there's these, the doctor-patient thing. Where, so I think it's not one thing again. Somebody in front. very psychoanalytic because, you know, you have the, the kind of clean, socialized face of what, what social mores are, and then you have this leakage of aggression and nastiness and, and all this kind of projection, you know, of the it, if you want to use that kind of language. Um, but I think you're right that you do, I mean, this is kind of where the four things about why I think it changes things come in pretty handy, because the ease with which nastiness can be deployed and the ease with which one can sit back away from the consequences of that nastiness. And, and I know from a lot of experience what it's like for young people to have these pictures distributed around schools and that sort of thing. I mean, it is a blow to a budding ego, like, no, you know, and it's just out there. And, and what do they have to do? They have to go deal with the school's anti-bullying policy by speaking to a headmaster or a teacher to have, you know, sometimes photocopied pictures removed from locker walls and this kind of stuff. So, the, the scaling up of what, what kind of damage can be done 
from behind the privacy of a computer screen to what can go on out there, I think is, is pretty terrifying. I mean, I think people could be pretty nasty anyway without it, and they were certainly in my day. Um, but again, we also have the digital dossier, the cyber shadow, you know, the stuff that, you know, in the most innocent of circumstances hang around to haunt us long after the, you know, those pictures will still be up there years later and we can see trouble, yeah. So solution-wise, I mean, you know, solution-wise, I don't know if that was your question, you know, I, I don't know if there, you know, obviously education and, and, and that sort of thing. But also, you know, the whole response to what's been going on on Twitter about how do we stop this, you know, trolling, um, I don't think you're going to. I think we have to accept that if we have these kind of social networks that there's going to be this kind of response and that actually we need to learn to, re- to be more okay with the stuff that's going out there. Obviously, the um, providers have to take responsibility for threats and that kind of thing. But if you create the space, the stuff is going to come across that space. And we have to learn how to respond to that. And, and I don't think we have yet. I think it makes us really vulnerable. I don't think people are thinking about that, though. No. Which, at least not the ones that I work with. Well, sorry. Go. Uh, just a, a quick anecdote from, from the work I do in the radio show. We had a, a young girl who phoned in because she, 12 years old, she and her friends had just, they had a slumber party, and they made videos, and... You know what 12-year-olds are like, you know, very self-involved and involved in each other, involved in their project, made some videos, put it up onto YouTube, and they're not thinking that when it goes up onto YouTube, it is available to everybody in the world with an internet connection who can then comment on it. And they just got these streams of comments, nasty, nasty comments, and they were hardly thinking of other people, let alone that they would see them and create this kind of response. And they're not ready for that kind of celebrity, in a sense. They they haven't developed a capacity to understand. And that's worrying, too. That's how quickly it can go out there and how quickly you're an extension of yourself, which is probably just a really free, uh, you know, spontaneous way of being with their friends was was attacked. So it's it's scary. I I think it's very easy to go into it, go to dooms. Yeah. Right, and because there's lots to be doomish about. Let's let's see if we can kind of keep it a little bit more complex. I mean, I'm totally with you. <laughs> yeah, there's two people in the back. Their kind of hands go up and go down again. Thank you. 
I think you are you are kind of opening up a sense of the possibility, though. And I think Susie's right. I mean, I feel I feel now like I'm being really dystopian when actually I'm not very dystopian. I have some worries about the nature of the objectification and the outward facing stuff. Um, but things like Instagram and blogs also enable people all sorts of different ways of self-expression. And I think really that you do tend to find a lot more support on Twitter than you find trolling, and that also on Facebook, and also with young people, you know, you can deploy certain degrees of recognition that work really positively, and I think a lot of the time, that's what's happening. Um, I just think we need to understand the functions that are going on there, and the nature of the architectures that kind of enable certain aspects of self to be deployed at the expense of other aspects of self, and we, we just need to be thoughtful about that. <coughs> yeah. Uh, way in the back and then sort of in the middle because I think that man had his hand up first and then maybe Somebody, Stefan, could you go there? And then Kate. Oh, this is a question for you, Susan. Um, you mentioned that you saw your grandson with um, something that he was using. Um, and my question is, how do you approach such a thing from that early age. What do you say to your daughter or your daughter-in-law how to deal with it so that they don't get very involved with things that they can't handle? Well, actually, I don't say anything. I mean, part of what I try to think about is that I really like Radio 4. And I bet that my mum listened to the home service when I was growing up. Okay, so I, there's something, I remember used to be like furious that the news was on all the time. There's something quite soothing as well as interesting and engaging about Radio 4 for me. I'm kind of its, I'm its target audience, you know, I'm not as fancy as Radio 3. I really like Radio 4. Now, that's my, that's an environmental soother for me. And it's also something I engage with. I'll make programs for radio. So I'm, I have an active, alive relationship with the technology that I, was, I grew up with. So all I can do with my, with, with my um, grandson's parents is kind of make a few little... Isn't it interesting? I, I don't know what else to do with it. But, you know, my, my, my son's job is actually online, like many, many people. Many people's jobs are online now particularly if they're writers or in front of screens. There's nothing unusual about being in front of a screen. You know, you can be a cook and you've got a screen up. There's so many jobs that we might think of as being intellectually challenging and interesting that actually are screen-based. Screen so I don't, I don't think it's about the screen per se. And I, don't, I, I think it's my job to kind of listen and just engage as 
as I can. I don't think it's for me to tell at, at this point. Okay. What about Kate and then Sue? psychotherapist but I'm speaking really from the point of view of somebody from the older generation and how I think some of the aspects that you've talked about are really really interesting and I want to explore more but one that I've experienced myself in my own family um, where I have somebody, um, a close family member who has short term memory problems is how amazingly um, uh, versatile these um, situations are where you can share, for example, photographs, and you can have comments on photographs. I don't have Facebook, but I have um, photograph sharing, where you can invite various people into the sharing, and then they make comments on the photographs, and it becomes a story, which you can then use um, as a way of um, holding the narrative, as somebody also mentioned there, of somebody's experience, where, in fact, their own memory of the experience may have disappeared temporarily, but when they are reminded of the picture and then the stories of other people's responses, I found that really fascinating because it's actually a whole extension of how we understand that sort of process of, of memory. And I just wanted to put that in as one aspect that this um, media has shown me, how we can be very creative with it as well as be worried about some of the aspects you've described. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think about it as enabling something. Yeah, so you enable something and all sorts of things can happen. And uh, it was social media week last week, and I went to a presentation where a guy from Scotland who lived in London, mother is terminally ill with cancer, uh, this is a, had a year to live, and he just had a baby child. And he invented a digital picture screen that was in his mother's house and sent her a picture of the child every day, um, right up until she died, along with messages. It also came up with... Um, birthday alerts and call so-and-so and really enhance the relationship. They were only able to see each other four times across that period, but felt very, very connected, and she felt that she had a real relationship with this child. So that's a different kind of enabling, that um, where there's an intention to yes. relate, yes. Yes. and the architect had that intention and created something to do that. So Facebook doesn't do that so well in the internet, but it actually does do quite well second and third tier relationships. So the people that maybe you, you wouldn't right. contact so much, you might have a little more than you like. But what enables what is the question. It's not one yeah, I, I, sometimes I, when I think about my friends who've got grandchildren or children abroad, I mean, I have children abroad, I, and they're on, we're on FaceTime or Skype, I, and political groups that I'm part of, I think, well, it's a kind of a bit like my freedom pass, you know. It's, it's like a, it's something that I, wouldn't, I think we should all have if we're old. Because it's it, the way we're able to use it, we're not interested in a lot of the other stuff, and it is about the connection. But Sue, is, can you stick your hand up so the mic can come to you? Oh, you've got yeah, it. Great. Yeah, I was just actually because sort of picking up on the point of you know everything can be used you know for good and for bad. I was reminded of reading about. Uh, do you remember the game Second Life? Yeah. I don't know what's happened to it, but this sort of where you actually constructed you your know, avatar bars and pull people developing whole personas and existences. But what really struck me was how it was used by people who were physically handicapped, who had no mobility, mm -hmm. and they could have mobility in these avatars. They could actually experience things on screen that they simply couldn't experience. Um, 
you know, in their in their bodies. And that's actually something we've not really sort of mentioned. I think, of course, the whole thing uh, is with Facebook. Of course, it isn't a physical relationship, mm-hmm. is it? And I think that's a really interesting instance of social shaping, actually, because five or six years ago when Second Life came out, and it was a big spread in the newspaper, and they thought everybody was going to do it, and all the postmodernists got excited, like, our postmodern time has arrived, you know. And it, <laughs> it didn't catch on because it, it wasn't... Um, it, it, it's still there, and it's kind of a niche group of people use it, but um, it doesn't sort of just readily enable people to relate to each other like, like they do anyway. And I think it's interesting that that Facebook has 1.1 billion people and Second Life maybe now has 450,000, I, I don't know, does also enable something, but at the same time it didn't enable the kind of relating that we're sort of used to, so it didn't, it didn't catch on in that sense. Okay, last question. Uh, the comment. It's, it's a comment. Um, what kind of question? Uh, my name's Angela Eden, and I do a lot of um, uh, professional uh, uh, internet groups I'm, I'm related to people over the world a lot. Um, and my question has got to do with the unconscious motivation to stay engaged. If I was being bullied, or if I was getting stuff from people I didn't like, I block them. I say no. What is it in the people who are being trolled, or, well, certainly being bullied, that allows them to stay engaged in that network? And I understand young people, and it's their only way of communicating, and they think they have to stay in there. But maybe that's where the education is, to allow them to have some choice about, no, no. I, I, I want to know why they keep reading these texts. If I get crap texts, I delete them. I don't relate to people. So there's something about the unconscious that's feeding, as you say, this... Recognize self that is so destructive. Yeah, I don't. I I I have trouble giving a comprehensive answer to that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean that there is something happening there that needs to be explored. There is there is a a desire to seek something out, to seek evidence of something. I mean, I I think it really depends, right? Because if you're if you are start a political campaign, and then you're trashed on Twitter, like like many of the women have been it's not it's not straightforward right you because you you are going to your interactions your mentions to see where your material is being picked up and because you're you're writing and you're wanting that so the fact that you're then getting these very hateful things is not what you're relating to and as we know uh, there were a lot of women who pulled out of um twitter temporarily because of it i don't think there's one again i think what's so interesting is it's the whole world is here right just like there isn't one way to do this, and there isn't one way to understand it. And, I mean, I, the reason I brought up the Van Kidron's film is because I think it's got the same kind of, it's, it's got the immediacy of the internet, but by film. And I really do recommend it. And it's got, it's, it's just like, your book is not about doom. It's got a lot of the problems in it, or a lot of the, but it's also got a lot of the, very moving and wonderful things that can happen as a result. I mean, it's got the fact that kills kids will do anything to have their phone. I mean, if they don't have a phone, it's it's apps. It's beyond social death. I mean, it is way beyond social death. I just have one one sentence. Uh, Kranzberg's first law of technology is technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. And I yeah. think that's exactly what's going on here, and, and that's what we have to 
that's what we have to work with, really. Thank you, Aaron, for fabulous, fabulous.